0: Greg and I are breaking our most sacred rule for our final episode.
1: Yes, we are.
0: We have drinks because we can't be together, and we're going to cheers. Cheers. <laughs> cheers, my friend. Mm. Well,
1: Well, uh, welcome. I feel, back. I, I feel like I feel like John Boehner with my <laughs> my glass of red wine. It's just I don't smoke cigarettes, so I
0: can't. Um, if you're going to be John Boehner, I. I think you also have to start investing in weed farms. I think is part of a. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he's yeah.
1: he's on the board of of mm-hmm. a big marijuana producer, isn't he? <laughs> well, he was a man who enjoyed his depressants. Yep, yep. You know, and and good on him.
0: <laughs> well, I uh, in today's world, I would take uh, John Boehner at the head of the Republican Party, uh, full stop. I think I think just maybe full stop. <laughs>
1: I think, I, think, I think it would be nice to have a guy or a person heading up the Republican Party who enjoyed a glass of red wine and the, the occasional toque. I mean, that, that I think would, would be much better for the country than what we got now. Yeah, isn't that the case?
0: So this is our final episode uh, hosted by Greg and I. And, um, so we thought we would take uh, this opportunity to just to reflect a little bit on the show, but m- more precisely think about where we're leaving the conversation. You know, we picked up this, this conversation in 2018. It turns out we weren't sure we had, to, we had to look it up. Um, and for those of you that, uh, maybe like me are having a hard time recalling 2018 after 2020. Uh, We were in the midst of the Trump administration, which uh, was kind of dominating the news cycle. We were also kind of in the middle of um, a crisis uh, uh, at the U.S. border with how how that was playing out, and a number of other things came up, some of which we can uh, maybe recap, and then we, you know, fell right into the pandemic, which after a couple years of the Trump administration felt like another hit to the gut and kept Greg and I from gathering in person at our favorite uh, uncorked location. And I think it's, you know, I think it's kind of fitting that as the show is winding down, my hope is Greg that the broader national and international conversation is moving away from Donald Trump. So I want to start with saying like, how confident are you in that as we wind our show down, that maybe there are other problems that I think we need to highlight, which is maybe this ossification of QAnon and some other challenges that we have, but maybe the height of Trumpism is gone. I mean, what what do you think as
1: kind of a starting point? So first off, should we tell the people why this is our last broadcast?
0: Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I am, uh, resigning my uh, tenured position July 1 of 2021, um, a little more over a month from now. And for the listeners, there's a few different reasons for that. Um, but the most important of which is uh, my wife and I relocated to the Seattle region, and we have settled in here during our time in lockdown and are wanting to stay. And for some family reasons, um, traveling regularly to Texas AM and m to fill, fulfill my Responsibilities as a professor, um, sadly, weren't weren't going to work. Um, yeah. The audience should know that uh, while I kept our shows and um, Feed separate, um, there has been a parallel conversation on the Public Problems podcast. That is where I'm going to do uh, my continued show. Um, so we'll be doing once a week, starting May 31st. There, kind of continuing the conversation. Going, it's going to be. Uh, different format than the Uncorked. Uh, we're going to have it's more of a variety show where there'll be conversations, there'll be stories, there'll be uh, back and forth discussions like Greg and I are having. I'm hoping to have Greg on for a regular segment starting in August and uh, continuing to do current events. Um, and then I'm going to be um, doing continuing to do research on AI and writing blog posts, as it were, Greg, um, on the forum Less Wrong. Um, which is a group of uh, researchers and thinkers that uh, are loosely gathered around the tenets of rationalism and trying to understand how to do AI alignment and AI safety well. So I've started contributing a little bit to that community.
1: All right. All right. So we are going to miss you at the Bush School. But let's have a let's have a good send off today. Well, one more toast.
0: I mean, as part of it, you know, since we've already broken our, our major rule, we should toast multiple times. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So uh, I'm excited. You can I'll still be easy to find. You can find me on Facebook, on Twitter. There will be a website set up eventually. You can Google me as a weird of a thing that it is to suggest people do and follow the conversation. Um, and there'll be weekly live shows on Facebook through the Public Problems Podcast fan page starting next Monday.
1: All right. So, good. Very tell good. me
0: that you're optimistic because, you know, we've had this back and forth. Sometimes I'm optimistic, sometimes you're yes, pessimistic. I'm going to withhold whether I'm optimistic or pessimistic so that I get your, you know, your forced true uh, dialogue. But I have mine in my head already. So how do, you, how do you feel about whether or not, I guess, Donald Trump will continue to dominate the narrative again in the next year or two?
1: I got to say that that the last couple of weeks I've been pessimistic uh, because you can't have a two-party system a democratic two-party system where one of the parties is not democratic and I I just I worry that things like these straws in the wind right the Arizona recount (laughs) The I
0: mean, air quotes for everyone. Yeah, everyone yeah, there, there, there are
1: air quotes around recount. The the Liz Cheney defenestration, not that I was ever, ever a fan of Liz Cheney because I'm a Middle East scholar and Liz Cheney was one of the architects of our horrible decision to go into Iraq. Uh, so, I, I, I mean, I think that Liz Cheney is uh, not the most a cogent analyst of foreign policy issues. But as much as I dislike her, she was on the right side in accepting the results of the 2020 election, as opposed to the majority of the Republican caucus in the House of Representatives. And the fact that Donald Trump still has this hold on the party to the extent that people are unwilling to accept the results of the 2020 election And that this is reflected in all sorts of legislative efforts at the state level to restrict uh, access to the ballot, which, you know, I mean, during COVID, during the 2020 election, there were extraordinary measures taken to expand access to the ballot, but it worked. People voted. People voted in greater numbers than, uh, than, than, we had seen in decades in the United States in terms of percentage of, of, of turnout. What was it? It was almost 70%, right, Justin? It was yeah. around 67, 68% turnout. Really? Um, and Republicans under the influence of Trump have decided that this is bad for them. Well, that's that's an anti-democratic option to try to maintain power by restricting access to the ballot. And it's it's very troubling. And I worry, I worry because in a two party system, the out party gets in at some point. And I just, I worry what, what will happen if Republicans having control of the Supreme Court, if they get control of the White House and the Congress again, what they will try to do to limit access to the ballot to keep themselves in power, and and this is, you know, this is coming from somebody who grew up a Republican, yeah. who voted Republican most of his life, uh, who's a only a recent convert to the other side, and and is still, you know, I'm a small C conservative. I'm 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 uncomfortable yeah. with some of the elements of my my newfound friends. <laughs> Politically, But. I, I just I maybe it's just because I'm getting old, but I worry now I can make the other case. I mean, maybe Donald Trump goes away. We'll see what happens in the Republican primaries in 2022. But right now, he seems to have a stranglehold on one of the two great parties of the American political system. How about you? Optimistic, pessimistic?
0: Yeah, well, just like the rhythm of the show, I think, um, I vacillate. Uh, some days I recall that when Donald Trump was running, one of the comforts I took was, I thought it was the last chance, someone with that approach playing the entire game, but in particular, the white identity politics game in the way that he plays it. I thought that it was the last time the demographics were in favor enough. And I actually thought one of the reasons Trump might have lost in 2016 was because the demographics had changed enough by then that it wasn't really likely that he was able to win. Not that he couldn't convince a majority of the uh, white conservatives. Um, It's just that that wasn't a large enough majority of people anymore. And he brought along, some other groups to some smaller percentages that uh, helped with that. But I, you know, his core is undoubtedly middle to uh, aging white men and women um, and not the groups that are growing as rapidly um, in the U.S. And so sometimes I say, like, zoom out mechanistically. The people that support that are, be, are less in numbers and my generation and younger, I'm 33 now, and so there's a lot of distance between me and 18, so other people that might be voting. We're, uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, really? There's a lot of distance between you and 18? I'm going I'm to be 63 in a couple of months. 63, I think, is the, no,
0: 64 is the number of years my grandfather and I realized today that he had been married. Um, So if that makes you feel a little bit better, uh, that was 64 years. Um, So all that to say, like, the generations below me are more progressive in general um, than the ones above me um, and how they vote as well. Um, So, you know, I think there are these like macro conditions that suggest that traditionally the way the parties have split, that this is a dying thing. Um, And I think that's true. But to your point, um, and to my point in the talk earlier about Russia's role in some of the cyber attack stuff, if you are in a declining role of some way or you think the only strategy you can win is by terrorizing, maybe you terrorize. And maybe if you're still considered a major legitimate party. You go out swinging with all terror activities that you can come up with. And I remember when we were talking about this in January, one of the real tests that we that I remember thinking was, okay, the insurrection, the storming of the Capitol is like was was clearly if there was ever a red line in the process for loyalty test. And my sense was this stopped a long time ago. But you know, we said, hey, you know, this this will be a loyalty test kind of thing. And maybe that's too far for most like people who believe in democracy like denying that that happened and refusing to certify the election. Maybe that's where Republicans really draw the line. And it turns out a really small minority of the elected uh, Republicans drew the line there. But in terms of the extreme edge case for a loyalty test for an anti-democratic ideology, you got it. And they failed. I mean, they failed miserably. Yeah. Yeah. Continue to fail every day, continuing to to support the big lie as it were um, and D uh, uh, D powering was Cheney and continuing to support Matthew Gates and Marjorie Green as the, as a, as a legitimate part of the Republican party, not distancing themselves fully from it. And if we have to learn anything from 2016 and maybe leading up to that, the, the extreme wings of the Republican party keep winning. You can continually rely on the extreme lately, uh, the extreme versions to win in the primaries. And it seems to me that there's a real, um, there's a narrative that makes sense that Trump teams up with the likes of Matthew Gates and Marjorie green and goes on a whirlwind, not a whirlwind, but on a, on an extended tour that they forced any detractors at that point to get on board or be beaten up by him in a way that he still has enough power with those news sources that he can uh, exhibit punishment on uh, Republican actors. And that that's the real slide into like neo-fascism. I mean, now that we aren't yeah. already there with the Republican party and the anti democratic forces, the anti-immigrant forces, the hate filled rhetoric, the fear filled rhetoric, the refusal to engage with reality, we already had that but if you're but if you force people to go through this loyalty test of of things that we can all see with our eyes and we watched happen live aren't true and millions and millions and millions of votes separating between you and electoral votes and not millions in the electoral college of course but certification after certification if you can use those loyalty tests and you still you know, the percentage of Republican voters that don't believe that Joe Biden won the election legitimately isn't 10%. It's not 10% of yeah. Republican yeah. voters. It's not 10%. It's, it's over 50%. It's a majority. Yeah. And so, you know, so to your point, the there's lots of things to be pessimistic about uh, yeah. in midterm, short term, midterm.
1: And, I'll, and I'll, I'll tell you what makes me more pessimistic is Mitch McConnell. Because I, I I think Mitch McConnell is a pure power player. Uh, I, I, I think he has no morals. I think he has nothing but a gyroscope which which leads him to where power is. And he made a bet after January sixth that Donald Trump would go down right yeah. he condemned him he voted to certify the electoral college results in the challenge states and now i see him kind of reverting to a a, a pure partisan form that while he doesn't uh, you know kowtow to trump the way kevin mccarthy does in the house it serves Trump's purposes. Uh, and he is refusing to consider, you know, he's back in the, you know, our job is to destroy the Biden presidency. Right? That, that I think he's basically said, in, for all intents and purposes, our job is to make the Biden presidency a failure. Not to work for the country, not to try to, you uh, uh,
0: Work for the country.
1: Bipartisan approaches to 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 make the recovery from COVID the best recovery it can be. It's to well, we're gonna block the January sixth, we're gonna block any investigation of January sixth because it's too partisan. Really? You were they would have they would have strung you up if they caught you, Mitch. Yeah they had a noose outside the Capitol, you know? Your neck would have fit in there. Yeah. And, and, and you think that, you know, we should all put this behind us and, and just try to drag down the Biden administration? I mean, this is, uh, you know, when Mitch McConnell is in the middle and then he starts moving toward Trump, you get a sense of where the republican party is so 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 how do you you know how, how do you feel you feel okay you feel right?
0: <laughs> well uh, as i announced uh, i moved from texas to washington state and uh, the joke that i make is that it's really close to canada um, is the uh, is the hilar- is that what i think is a hilarious joke about the current state of affairs uh, but it, uh, yeah, so I think until relatively recently, I was much more optimistic. I, I mean, I feel like the Biden administration was making some progress. His popularity remains high overall, as I understand it. So, so, yeah. And, but we're not very far in for the the narrative to already be kind of shifting in this direction. I mean, we're only, it's still 2021. <laughs> And yeah. um, you can imagine that when Trump starts having rallies again, people will cover them. Oh um, yes, he won't need Twitter or Facebook. He'll just need to host the rally.
1: Yeah.
0: And um, so, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a real concern. I guess we have to hope that, like, it's not where America is. And, Let's hope. And Let's maybe,
1: maybe twenty twenty two will be very interesting. Yeah the fights in the Republican party. And there will be some fights. It, it, it'll be very instructive. And then the general election. And if the Republicans take the house and the Senate, which is entirely possible, it'll it'll be very interesting.
0: So I want to revisit with one of the other topics that's, uh, so democracy and the state of democracy has been, I think one of our common topics. And, um, as we're here this evening, I, I think we're leaving the conversation on, on pause here to say that we still both are are very concerned about the current state of democracy and what it looks like for going forward. Um, let's talk a little bit about the pandemic, because this is another one that um, the degree to which this conversation got hijacked so quickly
1: mm.
0: by bad actors is a lesson for me that I would not, you could not have convinced me, I guess, even maybe by, maybe by 2020, you could have convinced me given where we landed on some other things. However, I, I maintained in my own mind that it would have been really hard to make masks um, as political as we did. And then I really thought that when millions started dying and they saw their neighbors dying and they saw their grandparents dying and their friends dying, that that would have been the like shake, shaking people into reality moment that, oh man, I have been duped. I've been lied to. And the consequence is death for, for people that I know and love. And so I'll go first this time. Uh, thinking about the pandemic, this isn't how this played out. So on one hand, like, I think the most extreme case of people not ever going to get the vaccine is maybe overhyped. It does seem like people with vaccine hesitancy um, are reluctantly coming to say like, Oh, well now I can see that it's safe. And so now I guess I'll go get it, which um, isn't, I guess the most outrageous response, this is the response my, a lot of my loved ones have taken. They've shifted from I'm not going to do this to, okay, like other people are doing it. I got it done. My grandparents got it done. So people kind of see that, but there's, what I'm not seeing is this reflection on, we were lied to repeatedly by our, by our group, by Donald Trump, by the, the Republican leadership that this was a fraud, that in fact it was killing a lot of people in retrospect and the vaccines were safe that then reconciling of those two views because of our information flows and, and a variety of other reasons, cognitive biases and, and others. Um, there's not a lot of, Oh, see, then they're really lying to us. There's a lot of them like, yeah, it was right to be cautious. And look, we did make it this far. And oh, look at Joe Biden. Like he's still fucking a bunch of stuff up. He's still really kind of messing things up up there in D.C. And so we were still really right. And oh, yeah, the election was still probably really thrown. And so all of this to say, like, I don't think we've learned our lessons from the pandemic. And my biggest concern as someone that has been studying emerging technologies and AI being a piece of that, but biotechnology being another piece of that and our ability to alter pathogens and alter viruses. If I'm a terrorist um, and I want to destroy the liberal world order and do away with pesky freedoms and dissent in the world, what I would be doing right now is trying to create another pathogen that was more deadly because clearly, the liberal world order can't handle it. They couldn't handle yeah. having planes flown into their buildings, but they really can't get their act together when we weaponize something that's invisible. And this is this is maybe more concerning in some ways to me in the longer term. than, and by longer term now I'm talking ten to fifteen years, whereas I think the Trump phenomenon is really one to five years. This five to ten years of the ability to create these weapons and deploy them against us, that's what I would be doing if I was an evil actor, because it was really effective.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was effective. Uh, Even with the the recent reporting on the the possibility that the coronavirus escaped from a lab in China, I, I don't think there's any evidence that it was intentionally created and deployed as a as a weapon by the Chinese government That's and I and I still think that these terrorist groups don't have the infrastructure to do this States have the infrastructure yeah. to do this I don't know if terrorist groups do but I, t- I take the point I mean we've we've had in our democracy, right? Three enormous challenges in this century. We had the 9-11 challenge, which kind of united us, but in a, in, in a way that I think that our leadership, and I don't just mean the Bush 43 administration, I mean the American political class misdiagnosed and it led us on a 20 year adventure to try to change the politics in the Middle East, which failed and and that cut at the credibility of our leadership class. And then we had the great recession of, of 2007, 2009, which I think in many ways cut even more at the credibility of our leadership class. And then, and then the pandemic, uh, in which we unfortunately had a leader who uh, cared only about the the daily con- the daily control of the media uh, discourse, rather than what would be the most uh, efficient way for us to suppress this virus and and try to get through the the consequences of this. And so, yeah, these are three really hard blows to a political system that had been used to, you know, racking up victories. And how you repair that is not something that I have a really good sense of, but, it has to be and i i've said this on the podcast before so this might be a greatest hits for our who are who are you know in for the swan song Uh, (laughs) how do you appeal to these to, to to americans who have been disillusioned by the failures of our system and the failures of our elites so you can take one of two paths and you know, for for shorthand, I'll call one the Donald Trump path and one the Joe Biden path. And the Donald Trump path is to emphasize our divisions, emphasize white identity politics, demonize the other, build walls, try to build walls and fail, uh, and 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 play to performative politics rather than actual effective policymaking. Uh, And we have seen that that is an effective way to mobilize a large minority of American voters. The Joe Biden way is we can't play to people's worst instincts, both because it's wrong and because america is changing we're not a white majority we we will we're not a white christian substantial minority country the way we used to be and frankly thank god for it or else it would be italy or japan right in a demographic spiral immigration is what keeps america from being in that intense demographic spiral that's bringing down uh, other democracies in the world. Uh, so, what? How can you appeal to middle and lower middle class, white voters who feel that the system has screwed them? Well, you got to give them something tangible. Trump gave nobody tangible in that in that market. He gave them only intangibles, right? His tax cut was completely skewed to people in my income class and above. You know, thank you, Mr. Trump. I got, I, I, I had more money because of you, but the damage to the system, I think, was uh, substantial. And what Joe Biden is saying, and and you know, you can there are all sorts of arguments against this, but he said we got to push out some money to people who are from the middle class and the lower middle class. In reaction to COVID, to, to, to restore their confidence in the ability of government to do something for them. And we'll see how that works. You know, the first tranche was fine. We'll see if the, Demo- if, the, if the Republicans can frustrate the second tranche on the theory that they want to make Joe Biden a failed president. And, uh, and the theory that performative politics, a la Matt Goetz and Marjorie Taylor Greene, is the way to is the path back to power yeah. so there that's my that's that's my that's my analysis of the situation i've become a marxist
0: just wow, wow. Right? You i mean you?
1: I, i've become a marxist uh <laughs> and and you know i want to say not the marks of das kapital but the marks of the 18th Brumaire, right <laughs> where 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 he actually did a good political analysis of french politics in the 18 in the 1850s
0: yeah so maybe it would be fun to speculate just a little bit i don't think that we we talked about this in advance but what is a future of america that works then um, you know this is something that that I don't think I think the whole world is wrestling with, not just a future of America, but this sort of neoliberal trickle-down, decentralized economy, loose regulation approach had and this tying of big business interests with with politics had like a lot of benefits. I think during the 20th century. I think there were a lot of positive things to uh, loose regulation, decentralization. In particular, we got the rise of so many of the positive things that came from the modern economy, from the information age, which would have we would not have, and you and I would not be likely having this conversation this way. And so there are all these immense benefits, but two facts stick out with me that sh- point is, is, is just is as basic, basic failures of this type of system. One, Inequality is out, is is very large within countries, which seems to be a big challenge within countries and within tribes. However, decreasing globally, as it turns out, like overall, the global inequality is decreasing. So there's one kind of piece of it, and this other piece is that wages, so in this kind of Capitalist market of capital and we have labor, as it were. And labor is not doing so well um, in, in growth terms, I guess. Um, and labor has stagnated in its ability to capture a percentage of the resources since the 70s, loosely. And that's where we are now, and I would argue i mean um, that this picture is not going to get better with a decentralized, letting capital flow to the most efficient ways moving forward because the human laborers are not going to be the most efficient use of capital. <laughs> and if they're not the most efficient use of capital, they're not going to be used. The more efficient use is going to be used. And so... Oh,
1: this is is your AI
0: platform. Yeah. So in addition to the trends that we can see, I think there's a a strong argument that that machines aren't going to make it easier on humans over time. Um, Uh And it doesn't mean that we won't create new jobs. And maybe there's this whole... And this is why I'm asking kind of your thoughts about the future, because maybe there is a new economy that the efficiencies gain from... AI's production capacities trickle throughout the entire kind of globe. And then we have this new kind of economy that is people doing what you and I do, which is, you know, creating. Sit around and
1: do podcasts. Sit
0: around and do podcasts. Um, as it were, as some futurists would argue that we, we reach an economy where that's what it is. It's kind of, you know, the machine stops from the early 1900s is this beautiful account of what people do is sit around at their house and go to talks all day and, and share ideas. So I'm not sure it's like the, the, the worst outcome, but without, without, without um, societal approaches to it that are collective, it seems to me that the deregulatory market-based approach to the new economy is one that uh, seems suboptimal, I guess, to fully engage citizens a rigorous humanity and a new kind of future for us because the old one is, we, we've moved past the old one. So we need new visions. So I wonder what your thoughts on some of this is uh, as uh, as we wrap down our conversation here.
1: So I, I've, I think the idea of, among progressives that neoliberalism is a curse word is really misplaced because the neoliberal economic experiment that ran basically from the late 70s early 80s into the into the first decade of of the 2000s raised more people from poverty than any other social change than one can imagine i mean can you imagine india and china which were countries that were just mired in intense poverty and now uh, you know, China ahead of India, but they're both on an upward trend economically. Now that has created enormous inequalities, both in those societies and in our society. Right. Uh, and, and we're not headed for an economy where we all sit around and, and, and talk about ideas. We're headed for an economy where, where some of us have service jobs, right? Because we like to go to restaurants and, uh, you know, we like to order on Amazon, and we like to watch uh, Netflix, Ooh. and so somebody's got to make the Netflix stuff and run the Amazon procurement centers and cook and serve at the restaurants that we like to go to, right? And and uh, it's 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 a different economy, but it's one that's shaping up, and and what it needs is a government to redistribute. Income in order to try to lessen the inequalities and that's minimum wage laws and that's uh, taxation policy and that's uh, government in, uh, government intervention in, in child care and in other areas. I mean, I, I think one of the genius moves of the Biden administration is to find child care as infrastructure. Mm, yeah, I, I think. I think that's a winning move. Uh, You know, rich people like me, we can afford child care. But I got to tell you, when I was your age and I had kids, thank God my wife had a better job than I did. Every single cent of my after-tax salary went to pay for our child care.
0: Uh, Yeah, there's no, I mean, it's clearly something that has, uh, so, Um, uh, man, where's Raymond Robertson when I need him. So this is clearly like lots of other infrastructure things, uh, clearly a positive externality, right? Investing in quality childcare for, uh, for families um, and making it affordable is this is a similar type of argument for the 21st century. I think as public education was for the 19th century to be a, prepared group of people for what the world brings you. Yes. And also things like, you know, providing universal benefits to mothers. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, maternal paid leave. And well we need
1: we need, I mean we need a pronatalist policy. Yeah. And, because it's and smart. And, and we don't we don't have a pronatalist policy. And to some extent, and this is where I park company with my you know progressive friends, uh it gets tied up in the abortion debate and and i i i do think that we need a pronatalist policy that not only helps mothers and and privileges childbirth but also and this is this is me being the conservative and the catholic right that and i'm not talking about reversing roe or 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 anything like that but provides incentives for, for, nat- for natalist choices yeah. that nudges people toward those choices because frankly the the problem in the future is not going to be too many people it's going to be too few yeah so
0: yeah yes um, yes 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 and yes more money for mothers for children and for education yeah. because they're yes. all positive externalities for society. Every dollar spent by society has a positive return on average to those yes. types of, yeah. of activities. So I wonder, uh, so one of the things that I'm wanting to wrestle with next, and uh, not as the podcast generally, but with my own uh, thoughts, I guess, is, and I guess this gets at my criticism of neoliberalism, which isn't that the market economy has been successful. I I think that it's really clear that across lots of markets, deregulation, competition is just how the world leads to uh, to better wealth, to more uh, more goods for everyone, for a better society, a more wealthy society where we can all have everyone can have the benefits that you and I have of good housing good education, good healthcare. So uh, it's it's pretty unambiguously clear to me that some type of form of market competition is what gives us those outcomes. People out there in their communities trying to find solutions to things, creating efficiencies, creating profit.
1: Creating Chicken McNuggets. Creating Chicken
0: McNuggets, isn't that great? So t- two thoughts, one, I think maybe that's just dead in the sense that companies like the new economy is filled by companies like Google, Amazon, and Facebook that are not the classic versions of this that we envision people out in their communities tinkering, making solutions. These are for all purposes, knowledge-based oligopolies and monopolies in in their global domain. They have kind of really assumed a lot of power in the market globally and arguably have been the only one of the major reasons that we've seen growth in the U S economy over X a number of years has been because of the outrageous growth of these companies. So if that's, if that's, if that's true, then what I worry about in this is in sticking with this, uh, neoliberal mindset i guess is not that markets worked but they worked kind of too well in some ways in the sense that we led to these knowledge-based companies that really uh play a large role which kind of defeated competition more broadly but my actual concern is this my actual concern is where is the common narrative for americans in the 21st century. Not whether or not we can get wealthier, not whether or not we can have more things. What is a, what's an, what's an American narrative that's distinct from more profit is better for all of us, which okay, like in general, yes, that's true. But a world that our morals and our common story is boiled down to more profit is better, I think we're seeing the consequences of that in our society of that selfishness of that. It's only out for me of it's about what I can get out of the system rather than than fighting for a common narrative for lots of Americans. Not that there aren't a lot of Americans fighting for a common narrative, but there's this is a large part of it. So I wonder in like thinking through what a better narrative is and I'll I'll go first, I guess, to say to kind of get you to kind of what i'm thinking and i think it's like we need a new a new american dream that is more inclusive than the one in the past right we need one that does celebrate risk and reward and does celebrate creativity and hard work and education but also allows for like a system for people to experiment and fail which i think in the 21st century requires things like reasonable healthcare for everyone, uh, some basic catastrophic amount, reasonable unemployment insurance, so that if you need to step away for a job, whether or not you're fired, there's some kind of floor under you, reasonable access to like buying a home so that there's one that is affordable if that's something you're trying to achieve and reasonable access to education so that all the children of America have an opportunity to have access to to these resources. And and then something about like a reasonable, like compression of wealth that isn't so redistributive that it is communist or or too socialist that, that defeats the returns to hard work. But it's absurd that the wealth has gotten so far because what happens to society is people then don't buy into the, the common vision because they can't see common rewards when to pick on the people that are being picked on, you know, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, et cetera, like the returns to their hard work are so exponentially larger to everyone else's. And I think we need something that looks like a different vision than this neoliberal hands-off where Bill Gates gets his takens and Jeff Bezos gets his takens and middle-class workers don't see any increases in their wages over their entire professional career.
1: Well, it's hard to argue with this, but that that's not a, you didn't set out a narrative. You set out the obstacles to the narrative, right? I mean, it seems to me that the narrative has got to be uh, an acceptance that uh, America remains a country based on an idea, not on a color. Of your skin or a, or a religion that you adhere to, right? We gotta we gotta kind of re-describe our civic religion in a way that is accommodative of the changes of our demo, of our demography, and you know, frankly, I think it's easy. I don't think that's hard. I I, I think that. Minorities in America, quote unquote, buy into the old American dream mm-hmm. and, and and we just have to make sure that those of us in positions of privilege like you and me, and you know I gotta I got say you're, you know you're rocking this kind of white European Jesus look these days. Yeah
0: I do look like a white Jesus, right? I really think yeah. I got the white Jesus thing going on.
1: Yeah, and, and, you know, it, maybe, it, it, maybe that will appeal to some of your old friends in Georgia. I, I
0: don't know. <laughs> maybe it will. Maybe uh, it will.
1: So I, I, th- I think that we can reconstruct that narrative and all the elements are there. We don't have to, we don't, we, we, this isn't a, an act of creation. It's an act of, of just renewal we've had periods in the country when inequality was you know enormously outrageous right and it's a matter of government intervention to redistribute it's i i I don't think that's hard i think we've got the playbook right Uh, unfortunately part of it is going to be and this is inevitable it's going to be a national project against the People's Republic of China, right? In the same way that a lot of the fissures in American society were papered over by the Cold War. Interesting. I, I, I do think that that our chattering class, our governing class is coming to this uh, consensus in the same way they came to a consensus after 9-11, which was very damaging. I think they're coming to a consensus about our new enemy is China, and and there will be some good things that come out of that. There will be more public investment. There will be more, more, more sense that 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 we're all in this together. And we've, we, we are. but there will be some bad elements to it too, right? So, and just as just as in the Cold War, there were some bad elements to it, and I think that's where we're going. And I think we just we have to get over this, if you will, the Trump hump. Where, where white nationalism has been one of the major mobilizing elements of the coalition to a much, to a more inclusive vision, my fear is that it will depend more than I would be comfortable with, with the notion that the Chinese are our enemy.
0: So here's what we can hope for. There has been a, there's a D, a major report coming out and a declassification effort around UFOs. So we're gonna have our own Independence Day. That we re- we realize that our actual common enemy is all the real aliens, the ones that are not on Earth. And then this is, we can pull it
1: together. This is this is Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan said that to Gorbachev. You know yeah, when, the aliens. We would all come together if the aliens attacked us. And let's hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah, I, really, I really hope that doesn't happen. I hope <laughs> they come in peace when they come, but let's, let's emphasize the, 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 the renewal of the American dream narrative that's inclusive and take the elements of, we need to have you know, a stronger public infrastructure that includes all the, the new elements of infrastructure, roads, bridges, the old elements, non-leaded pipe water, childcare, public health, right? And 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 let's hope that we don't go overboard in the fact that we're just we're gonna justify that by the fact that we've got a we've got a challenge from these Chinese. That yeah. might be. That might. This might not be a bad place to conclude. Our, our three and a half year. Yeah, it's been quite some time.
0: Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, it's. Uh, it, it 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 occurred to me in our conversation that we hit at it directly, but the other big topic um, that we should just mention one more time, I think has been the uh, the way in which the conversation has shifted uh, around race and uh, race. Yeah. And not yeah. that uh, we have not had a similar shift in mass shootings, for example. Um, this continues mm-hmm. to be something that is another topic that we'll wrestle with. Um, and, uh, but, but it, it has also been a, a moment that arguably really uh, became a second uh, civil rights movement uh, throughout 2019 and 2020. And um, uh, we, we've kind of come at this from a couple of different angles, but let's hope that this is a conversation that continues and we continue and maybe uh, state of Washington has already made, for example, meaningful police reforms. Hopefully this is something that doesn't fade away, but also we make some progress on, but also that, uh, that we don't allow it to be hijacked unnecessarily. Uh, yeah. the conversation around these things, because, uh, there's, there's much more routes to finding things that unite us as well. And uh, this, this particular issue of brutality and policing doesn't need to be an issue that is just something that minorities care about. This needs to be something that we all care about. Um, and, and we can move forward. So it, it just on me that in addition to the pandemic and, the uh, yeah. The um, Trump years. That uh, another piece that characterized this was this past summer, in particular, uh, with the uh, with the protests and, and kind of right. forcing the conversation forward on policing.
1: And that, and I think that that's a, a, a good and necessary reaction to this effort to mobilize some kind of white identity as as a basis of political mobilization.
0: Yeah. Well, Greg, I. Uh, I'm looking forward to continued com- conversations. I wanted to say too yes. that one of the things that has been really nice about this setup is we were really left to say whatever we wanted. Uh, we yeah. we all were self-censored, um, and in a time of great uh, political divide and uh, and our opinions, I think it's appropriate to close on. It was it was very much appreciative that the Bush School uh, both funded us, and uh, I, for one. Just so the audience knows, uh, did not feel uh, censored uh, in a time where a lot of that was going on on both sides of the discussion. And you or I were, were pretty free to uh, maybe we kept our cursing down a little bit and maybe the reverence down a little bit. And we didn't drink too much. Um, right. But the topics were, were our own and our opinions were our own on these. And I think it was uh, in the time of Trump and in the time of kind of perversion of of freedom and truth, it was. It was really, um, I guess, an honor to get on here week after week uh, by week with you and uh, say what we really thought, because I think it was really important at this moment in time. So
1: thanks for was, being there for that. It was, it was great fun, which, you know, I wouldn't have done it if it weren't fun. It, and, and I do appreciate the fact that the Bush School supported us. And even though we're, we're violating the prime directive, of drinking during the podcast Uh, i I would say i would have to tell everybody that we drank before the podcast Mm. and after the podcast (laughs) but but a final toast to the podcast and to you and uh best of luck in your new ventures
0: yeah and people should continue to follow the
1: conversation it will be
0: easy to find I will be having Greg on somewhat regularly. We will be continuing to look at public policy issues and questions of meaning and questions of policy. So, And we are going to – our plan is to pass the reins on to the Student Government Association and allow them to uh, take over the brand as much as they would like. We're going to give them the access to the RSS feed, to the Facebook page, and let them brand as they – see fit if that continues to be of interest to them and um, it's kind of exciting to pass it on to someone else and yeah. was, have a have a have a go at it
1: that's 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 what you have to do you start things up and then you pass them on
0: awesome. thanks so much my friend it's been a pleasure having these conversations with
1: you Justin it's been great fun and and I think intellectually interesting and yeah. uh, and and more than worth the time.